First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we now ask for your help as we consider your sacred word. Give us minds to grasp our great need for you. Give us ears to hear from your word. And Father, we ask for tender hearts. Awaken to the Spirit's work in our midst. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as you've already heard, we are continuing in our series in 1 Peter. If you've been in attendance over these weeks, you're no doubt aware of the profound truths we've heard each, in each of the messages that the brothers have been bringing. If you're here today for the first time, we certainly want to welcome you here. In fact, we're quite grateful you are here with us, friends. We hope that you, in fact, we'd encourage you to perhaps take some time and maybe go hear all of the messages which precede this one in this series in 1 Peter. The title of our message this morning is War and Witness. War and Witness. The friends, uh, I think our text is really straightforward. And if you've been following Peter's thought process each, in each of these weeks, it seems as if there's nothing too shocking about what he says to us in our text, especially when we consider how he views his audience, referring to them as aliens and strangers, exiles. In fact, he's already done that twice prior to our text today. In chapter 1, verse 1, he does so. In chapter 1, verse 17, he calls Christians exiles, aliens, and strangers in this world. In our text, which we've just read in verse 11, he does so now for the third time. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. These terms, of course, recall for us a time when Abraham in his own life referred to himself this way. Back in Genesis 23, when he referred to himself as an alien and a stranger. And we should recall how when Abraham uttered those words about his own circumstances, he did so in the context in which he had no property and he needed to bury his wife. And I think deep down, once we get beneath the layers that we have in our own hearts and souls, we feel like aliens in this world. We feel it. We sense it. There's something in you and I that reminds us all the time, this isn't my home. I would compare it to at near the end of your vacation when you're ready just to get back home. I think we believers have embedded within our souls this urging, this yearning, this longing for home. We saw the reason why we are aliens and strangers last week. Do you remember what we saw in verse 9? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He called you out of darkness 
and into His marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, we who belong to Christ are a new Israel. We are a new nation of priests who love our God, who worship our God, who are blessed by our God, who have been given a secured inheritance. Yet at this time, we live among Gentiles. That is, we live among those from whom we were delivered. And we will do that all week long. And it will be a struggle. Because in some way, we are taking an otherworldly ethic and trying to embed it in our very worldly lives. In our text today, Peter begins a new section. Everything he said so far is essentially introductory material. It's just like a preacher to have a long-winded introduction. And that's essentially what Peter has been doing. There's sort of a transition which takes place in verse 11 with that word beloved. Every commentator will tell you this. It's now, we're, we are now, if you will, at the meat of the letter. Peter's now about to get to the whole point of what he's been saying. That doesn't lessen the importance of what he said before. It's just now he's about to drive some things home. Beloved, he says, I urge you. These people are beloved by God because they've been chosen by God which we've already seen as well. And we who are in Christ today, who've been redeemed by His precious blood, we too have been chosen by God. We are beloved, His beloved. For Peter, we who belong to Christ should be reminded of just what this means. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being kept by God's power and being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But listen carefully, brothers and sisters. Peter doesn't want us to take a preseason football kind of posture in this living Peter doesn't want us to think as Christian exiles that this life doesn't matter. It's sort of like, as I mentioned, a preseason game where the stars might play 10 minutes and then the scrubs are playing the rest of the game. Our Christian lives aren't to be viewed this way. There's a seriousness to how we live and move and have our being. Right now matters. What you think matters. What you say matters. Where you go matters. What you do matters. This week matters. Last week matters as well. Our, past, our posture isn't withdrawal from the world, but instead our posture is to take a standard that is otherworldly and integrate it into our worldly lives. And that's not easy. Literally, brothers and sisters, We have to find our ways to keep our eyes on heavenly ethics while we live with our eyes among all the beautiful things God puts in front of us. Dear friends, here would be the main idea of our text this morning. If you're a note taker, perhaps you would want to write this down. Christian exiles fight sinful desires and we live lives of intentional witness. Christian exiles fight sinful desires, 
and we live lives of intentional witness. The, the text has two points, and the two points are right there in that description. So number one this morning, for you and I to do this, we have to declare war on our sinful desires. Brothers and sisters, we need to declare war on our sinful desires. Notice again verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This kind of language isn't surprising to us. For example, hear how Paul refers or talks to Peter. Peter or Paul talks to Timothy rather. I have fought the good fight, Paul will say. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In 1 Timothy 6.12, he tells him, you fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold onto eternal life to which you were called. Perhaps one of the more familiar passages dealing with this sort of warfare is the Ephesians 6 passage. We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, against world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all things to stand. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a life of struggle. It is a life of warfare. It is a life of strife. The reality of living in this exiled life is that our hearts and minds are battlefields of contested desires. Each and every day, you are waging war. You are in a battlefield and there's carnage everywhere. The contested desires which seek to drag you here or there or somewhere in between. Peter's instruction is clear. There is a war and the war is your passions. There's something inside of you that you need to put your eyeballs on. It's a war. I don't know if we have any Dead Poet Society fans in the room. It's one of my favorite movies. There's a scene in the movie where Professor John Keating, played of course by Robin Williams, asks his class to huddle up. This is near the front end of the movie. His class is still trying to figure out who is this odd new professor. He's a bit eccentric. In fact, he's just asked his class to rip out the pages of their textbook. And he huddles his class together and he gets down on one knee and he says to them, I love this line, we do not read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Now he quotes Whitman, Leaves of Grass, to prove his point. We don't have to bring out Whitman for us all to realize we are impassioned creatures. You are driven by, consumed by, passions. And if we are not careful, brothers and sisters, our passions will destroy us. They will kill you. They will stifle your witness. They will harm the name of Christ. They will, if you will, put a black eye on your gospel witness. Peter says here, abstain from sinful desires, or we might say more literally, the fleshly desires, the desires of the flesh. This word abstain means to hold back. 
It means to keep away from, keep your hands off of. It could be translated, at least from the verb tense, keep constantly holding oneself back from fleshly lusts. This is ongoing, engaging commitment to stay away from, hold back these desires. Now, to desire is not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus uses this word, I desire to eat this Passover with you in Luke 22. Philippians 1, desire to depart and be with Christ. But the, flat, the passions of the flesh, however, are the desires, the longings, the cravings of our bodies. I think a great text to see this is in Galatians 5, in verse 16, where Paul uses the exact phrase where he says that we walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify what? The desires of the flesh. So the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are in a sense set apart from one another and, if you will, set against one another. The desires of the flesh give birth to the works of the flesh, which are evident, and Paul even gives us a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The list is not exhaustive. You and I are prone to think that our battles are primarily external to us. But really, friends, your greatest battle is you. Your greatest enemy in your life is, in a sense, your own self. The greatest battle is not what the world is doing to you, but what your heart is doing to you when it's unchecked. This verse is instructive, 1 Peter 2.11, because it informs us that even those of us who've been born again, who have the Spirit of God, are not exempt from fleshly desires. Such desires cannot be confined to just the sexual sins. That's often what we think when, when we think about the passions and the desires. Certainly that's there. But as Josh mentioned a moment ago, it could be everything from greed to wanting to find your identity in man or your praise in man rather than have the praise of God on your life. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 1 of our text, Peter mentions what we might call social sins of slander and envy. Peter is clear that these desires, these fleshly desires, are waging a war, an internal battle on your soul. Now, this word soul does not refer to the immaterial part of human beings as much as it, the whole person is in view here. Everything about you. These desires are seeking to triumph destroy you the soul is if you will the the center of who you are the the inner the center of your inner life deep down deep down in the crevices of who you are there is a battle going on for your soul and what does it look like well when we sin we move away from what our souls were designed for our souls were designed for god himself to love god to have pleasure in God, to be known by Him, to have the joy that can only come from Him. And when we go after the competing desires of our flesh, 
We mar what our souls were created for. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 2, that we who live for human passions cannot even do the will of God. Again, friends, our real battle is not our government. It's not any leader you don't like. It's not the money you have or wish you had. And our real problem is not that the Red Sox are on the brink of winning the series. Our biggest problem is is always the person you see in the mirror every morning. I I think D.L. Moody said it best, right? I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any man I know. The flesh is a good servant, but it's a terrible master. What does this world tell us? You see, what Peter's telling us is not what you're going to hear this week. It's not at all what you're going to hear this week. What you're going to hear this week is that your desires are good and that if you want to be true to yourself, you just need to gratify those desires. God made you that way. It's okay to do it. That's the stuff you hear and see all the time. It makes a whole lot of sense to worldly kind of thinking. But brothers and sisters, we're aliens and strangers. We're otherworldly, at least in how we've been called to live. We are foreigners with a new mindset. And friends, that's exactly how you should view the desires of your flesh which seek to wage war or which are waging war on your souls. I think perhaps an example from the great novel Moby Dick is helpful here. Of course, it's a field with biblical imagery. The narrator who's the only one who survives is Ishmael. And of course, it tells the story of King, or not King Ahab, Captain Ahab, who, of course, has this unquenching desire to seek his revenge on the great whale. In fact, Ishmael says that his desire is, I quote, a quenchless feud. And that's what the whole book is about, how he has to get the object of his desire. And what happens in the end? Spoiler alert. What he wants so much kills him. I mean, the book ends with him being caught in the harpoon line, whale taking him down, and he's dying. The very object of his passion, maniacal even, will kill him. And friends, you are no different if you don't wage war on the sinful desires of your flesh. They will take you down and drown you. Are you aware, brothers and sisters, are all of us aware of just how dangerous it is to play it safe with sin. Are we aware that there are desires lurking in our soul that if we don't put our attention on and if we don't go to war with, we will be a casualty very, very quickly? I heard the story this week of a guy by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge. I'd never heard of him, so I had to do just a bit of research In his time, he was quite famous. He was an English journalist and satirist, respected. He was agnostic most of his life, came to faith later in life, even wrote a book on Mother Teresa, which received quite a bit of awards. He wrote an autobiography of his life called Chronicles of Wasted Time. And in that book, he tells a story about his pre-Christian days when he says that while he was always faithful to his wife, He entertained the idea in the back of his head that if he ever had the opportunity, he would have a sexual affair just for the experience. And he thought he had the opportunity when he was in India teaching journalism. 
Every morning he would swim in the Ganges River. And one morning, off in the distance, he sees an Indian woman bathing herself. And he thinks to himself, here's my chance. Here's my opportunity. And he began to swim upriver to her. And as he swam, he began to face struggles, not from the current in his face, but the current of his own conscience. There was a voice in his head saying, Malcolm, stop. Don't do this. Turn around. But there was another voice in his head saying, this is your only shot. You've always wanted to do this. You've always desired this. Do it. So he kept going. In the last stretch, he swam underwater the whole way. And when he came up, it was he and not she who had the most shock. Because for Malcolm, he was there standing and looking into the face of a woman who was a leper. Her nose was eaten away and gone. Her skin was white and blotchy. The tips of her fingers were all eaten away by that wretched disease. And Malcolm Muggeridge said his first thought was to say, what a wretched woman that is. And then it dawned on him, the wretch was Malcolm. The wretch was this desire that he allowed to live and move and stay and reside in his heart for the opportunity that if it ever happens, I'll go for it. And when he does, he realizes it would have crushed him, killed him, undone him. And you and I are no different. Peter is urging us, look inside your desires drive behavior. Which is why verse 11 precedes verse 12. What you think, what you desire, what you crave, what you yearn for, what you hunger for, whatever your appetite is today, will fuel the desires you have tomorrow. Pardon me, the actions you have tomorrow. My dear friends, if we don't get to waging war, the casualties will continue to mount up. And I was thinking this week, I, we all know that. I mean, this, 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 is, this is not shocking for Peter to tell these things to us. We know our own hearts. Guys, we have the scars to prove, all of us do, that our desires will wear us out if we don't get to war with them. So I was thinking this week, how can I encourage this faith family, my own heart, to get to war. I want to offer you a few reasons or a few ways in which we can fight this battle. How can we wage war against our sinful desires? I want to mention just a few. First, I think we have to recognize a war posture. First, we have to recognize a war posture. What, what do I mean by that? There was a fascinating article last year in the Washington Post, and here was the title of the article, Here's How Much of Your Life the United States Has Been at War. And there's a lot of graphs, shows you all the history of America's wars, and has all the years in which you could be born, and has your birth year, and it gives you a percentage of how many, or how much of your life, rather, America has been in war relative to your birth year. So, for example, if you were born in the 80s, nearly 50% of your life, as of today, our country has been in war. If you were born in the 90s, it goes up dramatically. If you were born, in, for example, in 1996, 77% of your life our nation has been at war. And of course, 2001 and on, 100% of your life, our nation has been at war. We've been at war for 17 years, and you and I just live as if that's really not going on. 
We've been fighting for so long, I don't even know that we realize the carnage on the battlefield. In fact, if you're like me, the only time you pay attention to the war that's going on is when something big happens. A helicopter crashes and kills some of our brave men and women. Some bad guy over there, we catch him or kill him. Or some drone finds the, the goods or something like that. Anything that makes the news, we might pay attention to it just for a moment, and then we go about our lives as if the war isn't happening. I think we do that as Christians. I think we're so accustomed to living in this day and age, we've forgotten there's a war going on. And the only time we pay attention is when there's Christian carnage. This church implodes. This marriage fails. This ministry compromises. Those things grab our attention, and then we just keep on living as if the war isn't on our own doorstep. The way to fight a war is to realize you're in the war. The way we get together, brothers and sisters, and wage a response is to first realize there is an enemy and he is trying to destroy you. But the enemy is not just simply the great enemy, Satan and all of his ilk. The enemy is also our own sinful desires, which are waging an internal war. Number two. So we have to, number one, have a war posture. Number two, I think it's helpful for us to remember what God has saved us from. It's a bit of a, a way of encouragement to live faithfully. Peter reminds them in chapter 1, verse 18, that they had been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. Don't forget what you've been ransomed from. Lately for me, I, I think the example historically of this would be St. Augustine, who in his own confessions will tell you that at age 19 he goes to Carthage to study. His mother is so worried about him because he cannot get his lust under control. This man is just inflamed with lust. He knows it. His mother knows it. She begs him to have power over this. In fact, Augustine says of this time in his life, my inner self was a house divided against itself. War. Years later, just before turning 32, he becomes a Christian. Plagued by lust, he receives saving grace. And here's what he says. Listen carefully. As he recounts his salvation years later, O Lord, my Helper and my Redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of Your name how You released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from my slavery of the things to this world. Could he have said, you redeem me by your precious blood from all the sins I've ever done in my whole life? He could have said that. And it, certainly he means that and believes that. But what Augustine remembers the most is the sin that was crushing him and how God redeemed him from that. And all the others, of course. I think for us to get active on our wartime posture is for us to remember what God has redeemed us out of. What has God saved you from? Ultimately, He saved you from yourself and your self-destruction. Let's not ever forget just what it means to be redeemed, to be bought out of the bondage of our sin. Number three, we have to connect holiness to our conduct. In chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Holiness, conduct. You have to be holy or you shall be holy for I am holy. This week, Eugene Peterson died. What a great gift he was to the church. Of course, the author of The Message, author of many other books, perhaps my favorite of all of his books is the one entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love the way that sounds. A long obedience in the same direction. That, that's what it means to marry together. I want to be holy and my conduct matters. It's a long obedience in the right direction. In other words, Christian holiness is not your cute Instagram photo with your coffee cup in the right spot and your Bible open to a famous passage. That's not it. It's a daily commitment to pursuing God in your conduct, in your purity. It's a long walk in the right direction. I'm I'm going quickly here. A fourth one would be to rethink how we pray. Years ago, I heard a sermon by John Piper in which he says that one of our greatest problems as Christians is that we've turned prayer into an intercom rather than a wartime walkie-talkie. We Americans have compartmentalized prayer. We, we've essentially, we, we have our, our big spiritual house. We put prayer as an intercom in this one room and we go in that room when we need room service. God, could you come fluff my pillow? God, could you give me a little bit more of this? And then we go back to doing what we want in the rest of our house. And the imagery he uses says, instead of that kind of thinking, prayer is the general has put you on the battlefield. He's put a walkie-talkie into your hand. You can always talk to him. You can always tell him what's going on, how the battle is raging, how the enemy is staring you in the eyeballs, how you feel alone, how you feel weak, how you feel needy. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie because the war is raging. And when we view prayer as not so much a to-do list for God to come, you know, to help us out with, but rather a communication of our great need in this great battle, it actually changes things. Thursday of this week, of this last week, a young man sat in my office and I was just blown away at how this young man, so mature, seeking Christ, loves the Lord, how he tells me that what has been liberating for him is how he learned to pray. He doesn't need 400 books. He doesn't need to wear the best Christian t-shirt or know how to play a Fender guitar. He just realized that he needed to learn how to pray. To pray his struggles. You know, it, was a, it was a reminder this week. So often students say, I need to come see you. And when they leave my office, I'm, I'm like, Lord, I needed what that guy said more than anything I happened to have said to, to him. We need to rethink the way we pray. And then lastly, and we could, the list could go on, guys. How do we go to war against our desires? I think the last one is that we have to very carefully refuse to take the sniper position and instead take the infantry position. And here's what I mean by that. In real war, you have to have snipers. But in the Christian warfare, the last thing you need to do is be a sniper. The last thing you need to do is sit off by yourself, hiding, hoping you can just pick off a desire every time it pokes its head out. What you instead need to do, 
is join the infantry unit. You need to get shoulder to shoulder with other brothers and sisters in this church. And you need to do what verse 9 says, that you proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's not sniper work. That's infantry work in this war. We charge as an infantry. We, we charge with open Bibles because we need God to speak. We charge with tender hearts for we know what we've been saved from. And we, we charge with tear-filled eyes, overwhelmed that God has put us in His army to actually have a chance in this fight. Brothers and sisters, how are you waging war against your fleshly desires? What does your list look like of things you are doing? Or are you being pummeled right now? Are you allowing desires to marinate in your mind which are suffocating, stifling the Spirit's work in your life? Have you, you, do you see so much carnage in your own life you see no hope? Friend, I would encourage you today. The same Jesus who has saved you is the same Jesus who can bring you back into the right wartime mentality through repentance, through prayer, through your church. Secondly, we must live lives of intentional witness. This is verse 12 of our text. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Desires drive behavior. That's the connection. 1 Peter 2, verse 1, put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and slander. It seems to me that one of Peter's favorite words for the new life of believers is their conduct. What you do matters. In chapter 2, 24 and 25, we haven't gotten there yet, we'll get there. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin, verse 11. <laughs> live to righteousness, verse 12. Honorable conduct and good deeds are the fruits of waging war against your sinful desires. I want to say that again. Honorable conduct. Good deeds are the fruits of you waging war against your fleshly desires. What Peter is saying quite clearly here is that when people look into our lives, what they see expressed in our actions is what we put our hope in. When we direct our desires toward God and find our hope and contentment in His mercy and, our, and, and in His power and His promises, then our outward life starts to show and reveal excellent behavior. How does verse 12 work, though? Think about it. How does this work? How does excellent behavior point to the glory of God? I think he's going to answer this question in chapter 3, verse 15, a, a verse all of us have heard. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. There's something inside of you. You've been fighting those fleshly desires. There's a hope there which is leading to actions and your actions are observable. And I, when I observe your actions, I want to know what is the engine driving those actions. As I, as you, as all of us, wage war, we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. 
Peter does not give us a full list of all, if you will, the good deeds we should be doing. But what I did this week is I read the whole thing, all of 1 Peter, and I tried to jot down everything he wants me to be doing. Here's just a short list. Self-discipline, reverence for God, compassion, humility, love for one another, godly submission, respect for authorities, non-retaliation, hospitality, or if you need a longer list, just go read Colossians 3. The whole put off or take off, put on stuff. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Take off this. That's who you once were. Put on this. This is who you now are. That stuff is what you were in, that stuff was your sinful desires. That stuff was the sin that enslaved you. Put on these things. Put on Christ's righteousness. Just read Colossians 3. All of these things, these actions, are outward facing. So Peter uses this term Gentiles. I I think this is a reference just to non-Christians, to pagans. We are the new Israel. We are a nation among nations. And the nations that are watching us, the Gentiles, if you will, are paying attention. It seems to me that one sure trait of being a human is being interested in those people who seem like strangers to you. When I was growing up, living with my grandparents, my when my grandmother and grandfather would go to the mall, they would make us go with them. My grandfather always sat in a bench in the mall while my grandmother spent all of his money. And I would sit on the bench with him. And he called that people watching. He loved to do it. And he loved to just give commentary on what he thought about the people who were walking by. And what I noticed below, so here's a lady in pink, with pink hair. That's interesting, he would say. Or here's a dude with earrings and tattoos. That's interesting. My grandfather didn't grow up that way. Or who are all these weird creatures with cub shirts on? I mean, who who are these people that wear such things? He always noticed those who were most unlike himself. I think that's the idea here. Peter is saying the Gentiles are going to notice you because you're so unlike them. You've been saved out of the Gentiles. You are the new Israel with an inheritance they can't touch. They can't uh, remove from you. And while you're in their midst, your conduct should be in such a way that it's going to cause them to question you. Even if your conduct might even appear evil to them. Since believers did not honor the typical gods of the Gentiles, the typical customs of the day, they were naturally, the Gentiles naturally considered us or these people to be suspicious. Weird even. And yet Peter is encouraging them to pursue virtue. To pursue goodness that it will be apparent to all in society. This suggests at least this. There is to be an outward demonstration of our love for Christ. And it also suggests there should always be, or there probably already are, many Gentiles looking at you. You're under the microscope. This is not a commune we live in where we have secret handshakes and don't have to worry about what other people think. You're always under the microscope. You look different. You talk differently. You act differently. There's something different about you. You seem to be waging a war against the desires of the flesh. 
And this is going to cause at least conversation. I think Peter is sort of plagiarizing in a, in a holy way what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Or James, James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show what? His works in the meekness of wisdom. What did Peter mean, though, by this day of visitation thing? Do you see how he added that? He says there in, at the end of verse 13, notice it again, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now you should know, from what I've gathered, there are basically two interpretations of how to understand this day of visitation. Uh, in fact, one translation actually tips its hand on how it translates this passage. Here, here's how the NRSV translates this text. They may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when He comes to judge. So there are some who, are, who believe that what Peter is saying here is that they're calling your good deeds evil, but on the day of visitation, when God comes to judge, He will judge those who called righteousness evil. So this is sort of a don't worry, if you will. God is going to make these things right one day. God will make them accountable. Now, do I think that's true? Of course. But I don't know that that's what Peter is saying here. The vast majority of commentators are actually sense here an evangelistic tone to how our conduct should be done. We live in such a way that Gentiles see it, and by seeing our behavior, some, hopefully many, will come to faith. By the way, a great, a great way to support this interpretation is the very next chapter when if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, your good conduct could lead to their salvation. So there is a confidence we should have that our conduct matters and our conduct could lead to others coming to faith in Christ. Now this is not some way to say, hey, if preach the Gospel and if necessary, use words. That's a well-meaning intent behind that, I understand. But the Gospel has to be communicated. You have to use words. You have to talk about these things. In fact, 1 Peter actually says that, right? Chapter 2, verse 9. We proclaim the excellencies of Him, right? There's something vocal primarily about the Gospel, but there's something that's coming behind it. You're going to see my life correspond to the Gospel I'm telling you is rich and true and needed in your life. Peter is confident, I think, that there will be unbelievers who will see the way the new Israel lives and these Gentiles will come to faith. We may be reviled, but the goodness of the reviling is that we have a Savior who's endured it all, who knows our pain, who knows what it's like to be marginalized, and He also knows what it's like to fight the desires of the flesh. Jesus is our hero I'll conclude with, with a short story. A few, several years ago, I was in Salta, Argentina with several other Americans, and six of us were put on a bus to drive about 20 hours uh, south through Argentina, across the Chilean border to get to Santiago, Chile. 
As we were about to get onto the bus in Salta, my missionary friend gave us the instructions. Hey, when you get to Santiago, my contact will pick you up there. He'll take you to the hotel. He'll take you to dinner. The next morning, he'll pick you up from the hotel. He'll take you to the airport. Pretty simple. But as we were about to get on the bus, I said, Joe, how is your contact in Santiago, Chile, going to know how to find us? And he just sort of laughed. He said, Justin, six white dudes from Mississippi are going to be at a bus station in Santiago, Chile. Not a one of you knows how to speak Spanish. I think my contact will be able to find you pretty easily. And sure enough, we were there, and this guy walks up, just right up to us, and says, hey, Joe sent me. It's just like that. He knew exactly who we were, although we didn't know him. We didn't know which one to expect. That imagery in my mind is what Peter thinks it should look like for Christians to live among Gentiles. I sense from Peter, at least, in this text, that we are to be fighting something inwardly so that we live something outwardly. And as we do that, it's just noticed. Like six white Mississippi dudes in Argentina and then Chile are just so easily known. How is the war in your soul leading to a behavior in your life which compels others to question the hope you have? What are you doing to fight your fleshly desires? And what behavior will you demonstrate this week that tells the Gentile world, a watching world, that what you believe matters? That the Jesus you love and worship is King of your life? May the Lord give us grace to fight these desires, these fleshly desires. And may He give us boldness to live as people who belong to the King. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. May You, may you help us in our own ways, in our own lives, think about how to apply it by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, help us put to death, help us wage war on the desires of the flesh which seek to destroy us and help us live into holiness. Help us conduct ourselves in such a way that all those who don't know You will come to faith in Christ by our proclamation of the Gospel. We pray in Your Son's name. Amen.